This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative Live. After months of breathless coverage by cable news outlets predicting that Trump is going down, it now seems increasingly likely that only one case will make it to the courtroom by the time you make it to the ballot box. That case, the one on which the entire future of the American experiment rests, could be Jack Smith's prosecution of Jan 6 and Trump's election interference in 2020. I say could because there is one scenario where none of the cases are decided by the election day. That's right. Americans will likely go to the ballot without knowing what Trump did with those classified documents he took from the White House and stashed in the Mar-a-Lago shower. You can thank the $50 million that Trump's campaign has spent on lawyers in 2023. As we'll discover tonight, large parts of that $50 million were sent to support the key Trump strategy of stonewalling the criminal process. Just as he's done for years in every legal matter, Trump has tried to beat the clock. But this year, there are 300 million people and an entire republic at stake. Trump's delay, delay, delay strategy does not survive in a vacuum. Cable news is also playing its role. Just as they did in 2016, when we were constantly told how he cannot possibly be the president, he won't be elected until he was elected president. Now we've been told he can't be president because he'll be convicted. And that's not true either. So just as they did in 16, they have mechanisms built in to excite anticipation, mollify protests, and the Trump trials are a perfect story arc on which to build that. They announce the latest bombshell charges every couple of months, playing up prosecutors, boasting imminent decisive courtroom victories. Trump's going down for real this time, they tell us. The spin machine whirs into ecstasy. But soon after the initial rush, the humdrum of the justice system aided by Trump's time-wasting strategy squeezes the life out of those small victories. There is more optimism in the civil trials where we saw this week the $88.3 million awarded to E. Jean Carroll. And there's also optimism in the Alvin Bragg case, that's the hush money case against Trump that could be scheduled for as early as March, but likely in May. In savoring her victory, a vindicated Carroll gave us a unique first-hand perspective of Trump describing him as nothing, an emperor with no clothes. And that may be true. Donald Trump may indeed be a vacant vessel. But the frightening part of that is, how is he surviving? Who is propping him up? The answer to that is surely the enemies of democracy. How else does someone survive the onslaught of legal cases, so many electoral losses, and a global opinion which is charitably the lowest of any U.S. president in history. There may be a hint of the external forces by looking at some of the parallels between Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu. These are very stark. Netanyahu's return to power exactly mirrors Donald Trump's potential trajectory if he returns to power. Both leaders face four significant criminal prosecutions. Both men were run out of office for supporting the attack on democracy, and both men intend sweeping changes to the DOJ to protect themselves from justice once they return to power. 
And did I mention that both men were backed by the Adelson Empire out of Macau, China? And here's the kicker. Bibi was swept back to power after finally being indicted on only one of the four crimes he'd been charged with. And as we'll report tonight, Trump may well have only one conviction of the four cases that are before courts today. There's another interesting light on the horizon, and that is the 14th Amendment, or at least the novel lawsuit around the 14th Amendment, which could block Donald Trump from office. That is currently under SCOTUS review. But legal scholars mostly expect, instead of acting decisively, the justices will take the federalism escape hatch, allowing Congress and states themselves to decide what constitutes unconstitutional engagement in an insurrection and thus disqualifying candidates. And that all sets up a nightmare scenario, which we'll discuss today with our special guest. And it involves a Jan 6 event only on steroids. This time, insurrection leads to secession. I'm joined by former Assistant Attorney General for New York State, Tristan Snell, whose new book, Taking Down Trump, 12 Rules for Prosecuting Donald Trump by Someone Who Did It Successfully. And Tristan joins us from Manhattan this afternoon. Hi, Tristan. How are you? How's it going? I must confess, a bit nervous about where we are in the current state of play. <laughs> when you look at all these yeah. cases that are building up, I just don't see how many of these are going to get through by the time the election day rolls around. But we'll get to that in a second. So I want people to understand yeah. more about your book. You've did a, a playbook for how to prosecute and defeat Donald Trump. And it's based on your experience because you led the prosecution uh, at the New York AG's office of the Trump University, which was the first mm -hmm. case anyone was taking on Donald Trump. So tell us a little bit about that case. Before that case, there were very few wins scored against Donald Trump legally. He was really able, especially when it comes to prosecutions, to get away with everything for about 40 years. He was first sued by any governmental entity back in 1973 wow. for housing discrimination. And he got away with that one with basically a slap on the wrist. He countersued for $100 million and tried to shred the reputation of the main government lawyer. Does all that sound familiar? He did a lot of co-opting of other prosecutors and managed to evade any kind of accountability for 40 years until we brought our case at the AG's office in 2013. That case was really about this massive scam. So it was, Trump University was not licensed as a school. It wasn't allowed to call itself a university. He was supposed to be teaching people how to become real estate investors. None of the instructors were real estate experts. Trump claimed that he handpicked all of the instructors. He had nothing to do with their selection. They claimed that Trump designed the curriculum. He did not. They claimed it would provide programming access to help them become better real estate investors. And none of it was true. It was all a giant bait and switch. It affected about 6,000 people nationwide to the tune of $42 million. And we sued them for fraud. And we were able to get to a global settlement of our case for a total of $25 million. The victims who put in claims at the end of the case got over 90% of their money back. A lot of these folks have lost their life savings, gotten into crippling credit card debt. One consumer I talked to had lost his home over it. Most dedicated super fans people who adored him and were idols of the persona he projected on The Apprentice, he knifed them in the back and took their pocketbooks. And very proud of the work that we did at the AG's office. And it's that playbook that the AG's office is still following today and that a lot of other folks have started following as well. We'll go through it in, in a few minutes, but it's interesting you point out that there were 40 years of him buying his way uh, mm -hmm. out of justice. 
And then comes along your prosecution, which changed things. What was the difference? What made the difference in your AG office that suddenly turned a political will around? There, there was a... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Agree that we were lucky and there were some happy accidents that occurred. A lot of it was having a strong, dedicated, aligned team of prosecutors, except for at the very top, namely the elected attorney general at the time, Eric Schneiderman. He really held the case up for quite a long time. We were able to win him over. Trump refused to negotiate a settlement, and Schneiderman had a temper and was so pissed off that Trump refused to show him the respect of a counteroffer right. that it actually helped provoke Schneiderman into pulling the trigger and being like, the heck with it, go get him. We're going to go get him. The language he used reportedly in the executive office was a bit more colorful, and I do share that in the book. Yes. <laughs> You do. There's different political will, but you weren't facing, as we are today, a massive election, which can change the course of right. history and mm -hmm. the course of the Republic. So things are a little bit different today because of the deadline as we have facing us now. He can just get past the finish line of November 8th and then he's free. And that may well be true. If he is elected president, he can get off all of these cases. So tell me a little bit about uh, that interplay of having this deadline as it confronts your principles here? Will the system prevail or will his uh, stonewalling prevail? The biggest difference between our matter and these matters is that we didn't have this expiration date past which we might not be able to bring the prosecution at all. We do have that problem this year. It's especially acute when we think about the two federal cases, especially the January 6th case. I'm going to put the documents case aside because that one is stuck Yes. with Judge Cannon. It's a shame because it's a very strong case. I'm just going to put that one aside for now. The January 6th case in D.C. has a good shot to be quick. It's not very many counts. It's just Trump. The delays that Trump is trying to do there with this immunity issue, which is really total BS, it, it is a little bit unnerving. However, I'm hopeful that it's not going to be a long delay and that we will see that case get airborne this spring, even with the delays that it'll be delays of weeks, not months. The two state cases are a different story. You've got Georgia and you've got New York. Even if he were to win the presidency, he will not have any ability to stop those prosecutions in New York and Georgia from happening. And that's why the Georgia case is so important. Even if he's, Georgia, if he's president, he won't be able to hide under the uh, can't prosecute a president rule in, in, if it's a state case? If the Supreme Court were to do that, which I don't think they will, that would only be at the federal level. There could be an interesting question there about whether or not that preempts state law and makes it impossible for state prosecutors to bring a case against them. I'm already thinking past the immunity decision because I think that's going to come out the right way. I'm thinking ahead to Trump's ability to either fire a prosecutor or pardon himself. And he can't do those things to the New York and Georgia cases. There is only really one federal case, criminal case, that can actually be realistically applied to Donald Trump before we get to the polling booths on 
in November. And there just is the one case, which is the January 6th case Jackson is doing. It's slated to start in March, which is maybe a little bit, um, March 4th is very, very near. The court yesterday took that case off its trial calendar. So that case is not going forward as scheduled. But I'm still hopeful that it'll get put back onto the calendar for mid to late March, maybe early April. We have to also hope that the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court move faster on this immunity question. So let's look at the other two cases, the state cases. Let's look at the um, first, the hush money case. This is the, the Alvin Bragg case. It's related to the hush money that Stormy Daniels got. It involved Michael Cohen, that whole entourage there. This could go on May 20th. They've got a whole bunch of calendar issues related to the other cases. They will take a back seat if any of the federal cases need. This is an interesting case. It seems kind of open and shut to me. They basically corrupted the process. So the facts of it are pretty clear and the calendar on it, they're prepared to go. Here's the kicker. They're due to have a scheduling conference in a week or two. The judge in this hush money case has indicated that if there's no other case going on when they get to March, you might see the hush money case happen in March. It's not impossible. We could actually see it get moved up where the judge takes the opportunity to say, we're going. You know, he doesn't have another trial going on at that time. As for the facts of that case, you've got a recording clear business records, testimony by all the major people involved. You've got Michael Cohen, Daniels, Stephanie Clifford, of course, is her real name. And then you've got Karen McDougal, the other woman to whom they paid hush money. And then you also have David Pecker, who was the head of the National Enquirer. He's the head of the company that owns the National Enquirer, but he's the guy that they were dealing with to do the catch and kill. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty compact set of facts. That part's easy, and I think it will result in a conviction. The question's going to be a legal one that will get decided up on appeal. And that's going to be, was that falsification of the business record, was it done in service of another crime? If it was, then it turns the falsification count into a felony. If not, then the falsification is a misdemeanor. Misdemeanor, he would get off with a fine. If it's a felony, he's looking at least some prison time. The question is, was the falsification done in service of another crime? what counts as another crime under the law. That's one of the things that people have tried to parse, especially in the legal commentator world and and in the media. My take is that under New York law, there's a lot of other examples of situations where there's similar language and the courts have interpreted that to encompass not just other state laws or state crimes or offenses, but also federal. say, New York City law, because the, the city has a lot of its own crimes and, and criminal laws on the books. I think that's where the appellate courts in New York are eventually going to get to. But get, figuring out that issue on appeal could take a while. It could take another year. Right. So we could see a conviction on that case this spring or early summer, but not have clarity on whether it's going to stick and whether he's actually going to go to prison until sometime in 2025. And that could be true for any of these cases, right? If you're going to appeal. That's right. Case. How does that reflect on, on your Trump University case? Was it the same sort of thing where you were, had, had to deal with the same kind of appeal process? So in a different context, our case was a civil prosecution, not a criminal one. Same as, by the way, the New York AG's current fraud case against Trump, this thing that could be upwards of $370 million. That's also the AG's office. It's also civil and it's being brought under the same statute that we brought the Trump University. The kicker there is the appeals. That was an issue 
And I talk about it in one of the chapters is about playing the long game, particularly around things like a statute of limitations. Trump uses statutes of limitation to basically run out the clock. A lot of what the delays are for, it's to stretch things out so far that then the statute of limitations comes in and says, oops, that thing happened three years ago. No case was brought. You're out of luck, government. He tried to do it and we were able to fight back and we prevailed and we were able to get a longer statute of limitations applied to our case. In our case, it would have had a very binary effect. Do you actually get hardly any money back for victims or do you get virtually all of it? It was like a 1%, 99% situation and it made all the difference. We lost on that statute of limitations issue at the trial court level in 2014. We appealed it. We didn't get a decision back until March of 2016, but we won a big victory. That set the stage for the trial. After we won in March of 2016, the court set a date for trial that spring. Trump then argued to move it, saying, I can't do this while I'm running for president. The trial judge agreed and pushed the date off into uh, November post-election, and that was when it settled. That's how that went down. But we did have to fight a fight on an appeal that did, in fact, slow down everything. We lost over a year and a half on that point alone. And that's advice that comes through in your book. That's a long process. And you think about it, we could be out of a second term presidency if he ever leaves presidency. There's a much stronger argument for expediting a bunch of these appeals because of the strong public interest involved. I think it's especially true for anything having to do with January 6th because of the high crimes and and constitutional issues that are at stake. So I believe that these things get expedited. The hush money case, will we see an expedited appeal on that? I don't know about that because that doesn't raise the same level of constitutional crisis problems. Would we see expedition in the Mar-a-Lago matter if that were to get decided and and then appealed? you have national security concerns, I think you could get that expedited. The, the more that these issues get to the very crux of whether or not we have a republic and whether the constitution still stands, there's a hope that we're going to be able to say, move this along. We don't have all day. You, you can't take a year and a half to decide this thing. We don't have time for that. You're all out of a job if he becomes dictator. That's really what the argument needs to be in SCOTUS. Yeah, he's going to fire all of you if he's the dictator. And you'll lose your pension. Maybe he'll send some of you to jail. Maybe we should do something about speeding yeah. this up. Let's talk about the 14th Amendment. They might be concerned about their jobs, but we're all concerned about the Republic surviving. And this is a very important point of the Constitution. You're not meant to run for office and hold office. You've been participating in insurrection. It seems pretty clear that he did. Yet here we are still debating this. And it seems to me that they might even revert this back to the states. Where do you think this one's going to go? Ah, that's right. Yes, I actually think that is what they're going to do, because I think the Supreme Court does not really want to touch this issue. I think they are going to touch the immunity issue because I think it's pretty clear cut. And I think they're going to want to either they're going to make a big statement of their own or it's possible that they will simply adopt the D.C. Circuit's reasoning and say, that's it. You'll get like a pro curiam, one sentence opinion being saying the decision of the circuit court for the District of Columbia is affirmed. The 14th Amendment issue, I think what they could do there is they could say, there's a factual issue here. 
or really two that have to be decided as part of this. You've got legal issues. Is the 14th Amendment Section 3 still good law? Does it apply in this situation? Did it only apply to the Civil War? Do you have to have a conviction in order to find that someone was an insurrectionist? I have answers to all those questions, and they align with even very conservative legal scholars. We can say that the factual questions are, A, was January 6th an insurrection? And B, did Donald Trump engage in it? I think that the Supreme Court could chicken out and say, we don't know because the factual record developed by the Colorado courts is not sufficient. And we are going to remand this back to Colorado for further proceedings. Yeah. What happens if you've got states that decide they're not going to run Donald Trump on their ballot? And then you've got states that run it, mainly swing states. And you might have two different results on election day. You might have results that on a national basis might make Joe Biden look like the president, but on a state-by-state basis, you've got Donald Trump as the president of you know, Colorado, Michigan, whichever state doesn't take him off the ballot. So what happens in that case? Yeah, that's a good question. And you really outlined a very powerful argument for why SCOTUS does need to intervene now rather than later, because it will just sow a great deal of confusion if certain localities bump him off the ballot, but others do not. It could be that they say, we're going to remand this back to Colorado for further determination. And it's basically going to be like, hi, Colorado, do it quickly and then bring it back up when you're done. Because here's the problem. Appellate courts, any appeal, this is true of the Supreme Court, they don't do fact finding. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to deal with, they don't take witness testimony. They're supposed to get what a friend of mine who did go on to clerk for the Supreme Court used to joke about as being a nice cold dead record you're not dealing with people or testimony you just get handed a bunch of paper you need to make sense of what happened they're not going to be in a position to say okay everybody come on in we're going to figure out whether or not it was an insurrection and donald trump engaged in they're going to delegate that back down to the trial court level right in this case that would be the local district court in in denver heard this matter and uh, said it was an insurrection. They did say ultimately it was an insurrection. I don't know if yes. they Donald Trump participated in that. I, I believe they did, which okay. is how they reached all of this. There was some confusion. They weren't sure whether or not the office of the president was for purposes uh, of the, uh, what, there was an officer for the other way around. Was the president covered by the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which is far and away the most ridiculous of all of the pro-Trump arguments. Right. Like, That's insane. And I don't think that any real court is going to look at that and think anything differently. There is an argument that the local court in Denver did that. So the appellate court in Colorado would review the issue and decided emphatically. But that's just what some other folks have said about this. But anyway, the Supreme Court could decide it on the record we've got. I'm not too optimistic that they're going to then say Trump is off the ballot. I think they're probably going to say there isn't enough evidence to say there was an insurrection and Trump engaged in it. Or they could find this would be worse. They could find some legal reason why the 14th Amendment doesn't apply Mm -hmm. and basically gut Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forever. That would be bad because I think it applies to a great number of the folks involved in January 6th. And for it to be eviscerated by the court would be a terrible outcome. That's just common sense. 
after the Civil War, given that the Confederate Army was hundreds of thousands of men, do you think there was the capability and that anybody thought that the way that you disqualified insurrectionists required a conviction yeah, no. in order to disqualify them? No, the point of the 14th Amendment was to provide a blanket disqualification and then say, if you want to get reinstated, you need to be reinstated by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress. That's what they did. And and it's not, it, you don't need a conviction. So that's going to be one of the arguments, and I hope the Supreme Court doesn't import language into the Constitution that was not there. That's exactly the opposite of how these supposed conservatives say that they like to interpret the Constitution. They want to interpret the plain text of the Constitution as originally understood by the people who wrote it. If they go then importing a conviction requirement into that amendment, and it's Clarence Thomas writing that opinion, I mean, I honestly, I'm going to have to go running around my neighborhood in New York City, just screaming at the top of my lungs. It'll be a lot of hypocrisy and travesty of it would just be off the charts. Although anything's possible these days. So let me continue on my my nightmare theory here. Say they send it back to the states. And the idea behind insurrection is often to secede states. If you're not going to have the President Trump of the red states declaring, I'm going to secede these states from the main United States. That's quite plausible if he is on the ballot in red states, but not on the ballot in other states. There's a real challenge there. We could land up electing two presidents, which has been his goal for many years. You make a really interesting point there. I think that the optics of it, if he's not even on the ballot in a bunch of states, but he is in others, could potentially cause a lot of problems. The Civil War was caused by the election of Lincoln in a hotly contested but fractured Way race that was driven by region. So you had candidate winning most of the Southern states and Lincoln was able to pull off an electoral college win, despite the fact that all of the states he won were in the North, even on the ballot. He wasn't even accepted to be on the ballot in some of those Southern states, but it was so divided in terms of who was really competitive and who won in certain states versus other states that yes, it, it looked like two elections had been held. Mm -hmm. And by rights, it did result in Lincoln winning. But the South viewed that as so illegitimate and viewed Lincoln as they believed that Lincoln was a mortal threat to the slaveocracy that they all were part of. They decided that their only move was to say, nope, we are in fact leaving and we're our own country now. Could we actually get something like that here? Sadly, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I still think that it's not as, I don't think we're in nearly as bad positions as we were back then. However, there's a lot of crazy people out there mm. and you don't necessarily need everybody to go crazy to reach a crazy outcome. You just need to have enough people go crazy and that's how crazy wins sometimes. So we need to be a little bit worried about that. If we really have a patchwork quilt of where he's on the ballot and where he isn't, then the states that would really end up mattering and telling the tale would be some of the purple states and figuring out where they go. Or that it's just that Biden wins them places like Pennsylvania and Arizona. How does that work? The states that are so red, definitively Trump is still a minority of the electoral college votes. The problem that I foresee with your scenario is that Trump would make the argument that, oh, if I had been on the ballot in Colorado, I would have won. Yeah. 
yeah. even though it's not true. Because yeah. the state's not going to support Trump electorally, but that he would run around making arguments that like, I could have won Vermont if I just been on the ballot, even though there's seven people in the state of Vermont that are going to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff we could see in, the, in that situation. The Supreme Court will probably avoid that scenario, but the way they may do so could be to find that the 14th Amendment does not apply. And we have to hope that means that they're doing it just in that one case rather than they're killing the 14th Amendment Section 3 entirely. Are you concerned? I am. Donald Trump is surprisingly still popular. Talking to me that you can have so much evidence of his wrongdoing, of his crimes, killing potentially millions of people. And yet here he is, still a front runner. And if you have someone like a Nikki Haley as a running mate, maybe even reuniting the old Republican Party under that ticket, that's astonishing to me. Here's something to give us a little bit of hope. Mm. If you poll people on what they would think, assuming that Trump is convicted mm-hmm. in one of these jury cases, right. do you think he should still be able to be president? You got a much more definitive, like 60% or so, will say, no, he shouldn't. As opposed to, do you support him or not, where it's around 45, 44% of the country, 43, it's, it's in the low to mid 40s. Right now is where the polls are for him. At the moment, we got the new Quinnipiac poll that showed uh, a six-point lead opening up for Biden. But of course, every poll needs to be taken with a grain of salt. That was the last Quinnipiac poll before this was only a one-point lead for Biden. And they took that poll only like six weeks ago. That is so still early days. So it's still very early days. And you can't count Biden out. Joe Biden is forever a great closer. He, and he loves to be a stealth. Yeah. That's how he did the primaries in 2020. There was a point where we were wondering if Biden was ever going to emerge from his basement. He was just staying down there during COVID and he wasn't on the trail. He was making a video now and then. We were wondering, is he even running? Well, the summer comes along, COVID got a little bit better. They weren't having big in-person rallies, but he was out and on yeah. the trail. And there's two points I want to make. One is on the political side. We're reaching a point of no return with Haley and Trump. I'm not sure Trump will be willing to put Haley on the ticket, given the things Haley is saying about Trump right now. I don't know that's reparable after this primary. I think that it's quite possible. I think Haley's probably craven enough to take the VP spot, if offered. although I think a lot of her supporters right now will not be happy with that and will not then follow her onto be willing to follow the Republican Party again, they'll be the, the exiled Republicans, which, by the way, are key to this whole election. It's what do those exiled Republicans do? Do they support the Republican ticket? Do they stay home? Or how many of them say, I don't love Joe Biden. I, I hate Trump so much that I'm going to go vote for Biden. That is a lot of what won Biden the presidency in 2020. I think Haley is now getting to a point where Donald Trump is so vengeful I think he will be out to get her. He may flirt with the idea of putting her on the ticket. He'll shortlist her, then he'll drop her, oh, which yeah. is exactly what he did to Mitt Romney with regard to Secretary of State. He never forgave Mitt Romney for opposing him mm-hmm. and decided to humiliate him. He did the same thing to Chris Christie. I think Nikki Haley is in for that treatment. The Coke money is very helpful. And so she's not going to stop fighting. I think she's going to stay in it all the way to the convention. The party poobahs may come to their senses, even the ones who supported Trump 
if they're allowed to switch, they could, or there could be some kind of brokered convention. The Republican National Convention is in mid-July. Even with delays, I think we're going to get a conviction in that DCJ6 case by May or June. What may happen is that Trump wins enough primary delegates to have a majority going into the convention, but then he gets convicted. And then the RNC happens. Haley is going to take the attitude of, you got to be in it to win it. So she's not going to leave. Maybe if she were to quit earlier and then get humiliated a little bit, a la Tim Scott or Vivek. Vivek has kissed the ring and humiliated himself. If Haley is willing to do that, then she might be able to get back into the fold. But I don't know. You think there's going to be a conviction in in the Jan 6 case by June or July? Yeah, I'd say even earlier. I actually think it could come in May. I think once they start the trial, I see it being about two months. Now, look, I may be wrong, but I think they're ready to make it lightning fast. The trial for El Chapo was less than that. You can do a complex criminal trial really quickly if you're good. What happens if there's an appeal? How long does that appeal process take? The appeal process could be long, but it could be expedited because we're going to be headed for a potential constitutional crisis being the commander in chief. First, he's got to get convicted. Then he would have to get sentenced. Could we get a conviction in May and a sentencing by August? I think we could. I I still think it's possible, even with the immunity issue in there. But then we'll have the prospect of Trump being potentially the Republican nominee in September, having been sentenced to a prison term. and having that sentence be stayed pending appeal. So he's still a free man while the appeal is pending. And then he's running around trying to be president. Mm. What the hell are we going to do at that point? Um, There's another Gen 6 trial going on. It could actually be a trial going on. There you go. And what is and that? That's very, and that's very important too, because there's a couple of things. That's very important because Georgia doesn't have the same policy that DOJ does about not doing criminal prosecutions too close to an election. Whereas DOJ might not move on these cases in September and October, Georgia could, and I think will. Georgia's going to televise that trial. Mm-hmm. He's going to love it. Or, going to testify as much as he can. He will, but also we are going to benefit greatly because we're going to get the, we're actually going to get to see the testimony from these people and people will be able to watch it with their own eyes. Do you believe Mike Pence? Do you believe Mark Meadows? Do you believe Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and Ken Chesbro? And these people are dyed-in-the-wool Republicans. These are hardcore conservatives that have now said, I am done, I'm out. A lot of it's because they're saving their own skin. They did the right thing, even if it was for a selfish reason. And sometimes that's good enough. If that's the case, and we're heading into a November election where people are watching wall-to-wall coverage of what an O.J. Simpson trial, that is what people will be voting on when they get to the... Correct. Uh, and then we come back to those poll numbers mm. saying there's a chunk of people out there that I think otherwise are Trump supported or, or Trump sympathetic from a political perspective who could abandon him and say, I'm pulling the cord. This is my stop. I voted for him in 16. I voted for him in 2020. I've got the bumper sticker on my car. Maybe they're not full blown MAGA where they go to the rallies and everything. Republicans, Trump supporters who may say, I'm off the bus. This is my stop. I supported him in 16. I supported him in 20, but I just can't vote for a convicted felon. If we see and hear more about the testimony and evidence is persuasive for people, it's also how the testimony, lifelong Republicans and very far right conservatives saying he did it. This was him. 
I was there, I was part of it, but he did it and he told us what to do. Is there a double jeopardy at all in, in Jan 6? Can they say, oh, we can't have this trial because we've already been convicted in this other trial, which is so similar? It is different enough counts. They were clearly careful to do that, but the laws are different. No, there's no double jeopardy issue. You've made me feel a lot better about where we're heading. I got to say, I was a little... I tried. <laughs> this week, I was like, oh, no, this is not looking very good. But you really have increased my confidence that something significant may happen even by June or July, maybe even sooner. That's a fantastic outlook if that, in fact, happens. I remain cautiously optimistic that there's a path, albeit a very narrow one, to see justice in these matters. The playbook for how to beat him has mostly been followed by these four criminal cases. And that should give us some cause for hope. We've got some serious prosecutors doing some serious work. And I think that a lot of it's going to stick. And this brings us back to your book. I don't want to go through each of these uh, principles because they've, in fact, part of the book. People should buy it. People should read it. It's very useful. That's life lessons, too, in some ways about how to deal with any bully. It doesn't necessarily appeal. Yeah. Uh, you apply to just to Donald Trump in prosecution. It's just how to stand your ground and how to fight a good fight. Uh, it's a terrific book, Taking Down Trump, The 12 Rules for prosecuting Donald Trump by someone who did it successfully. And that's Tristan Snell. Thank you so much for being here on Narrative tonight. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. Anytime. One day, you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives.